you have a Bible, would you please open it now to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And today we will be looking at verses 1 through 10. Actually, I'm going to start up in chapter 11 at verse 30 for our reading, just to get something of the flow of the context in which the apostle uh, pins these words to the church at Corinth. Uh, basically, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is fighting for his apostolic life. Um, he has been pressed into the position of having to defend his apostolic authority. And that is something that he never defends himself as himself. But he does defend his authority as an apostle because it was true and because it was real. So here now, the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus... The governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. How humbling. Think about that for a moment. How humbling it must have been for the Apostle Paul to escape in a fish basket being lowered down the wall. How humbling must that have been. Let us go on. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we pray for the enlightening, illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, the one who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, the one who opened our eyes so that we could see, 
the beauty of Christ, we pray today, would open our hearts to this word and that we might hear more than just a human person speaking. We might hear you speaking through the instrument you have chosen today to bring to us your word and your truth and may Christ be exalted. And we pray in your name. Amen. There are a number of paradoxes in Scripture, a number of paradoxes um, that seem upside down, that seem against logic, and even sometimes against human reason. And one of those is this passage, strength in weakness. And we don't usually see it that way, do we? It turns conventional thinking upside down. Things like, in order to find your life, you have to lose it. The way up is down. And in other words, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. He tells us to become wise like little children. And he tells us uh, in other places all kinds of principles of the kingdom that are, again, hard for us to grasp because the gospel explodes the mindset and interpretive grid of a sinner who becomes a saint through the work of God's grace. And so today, this is a case in point as we come to the summit chapter and verse of this particular letter in the New Testament, spiritual power in weakness, suffering not strength and success, but look at the life through the lenses of the gospel. And in particular, Paul is going to emphasize that we learn to look at life through the lenses of the cross of Jesus Christ. For there we have the ultimate strength demonstrated in weakness. He yields himself. He submits himself to the death on the cross and the forsakenness of the Father in order to save us. There, the ultimate expression of weakness and the ultimate strength in weakness. And so we have to learn in our Christian life to apply this kind of understanding to the way we walk. And so Paul here is in a very difficult position. He's having to defend his apostleship. Uh, Paul went to 1 Corinthians, we know, preached the gospel, and an amazing thing happened. A church was formed, but it was a church full of errors and warts and all kinds of different um, dissensions and parties, and there was strife, and there was division, and there was incest, and there was all kinds of stuff going on in this church. And so Paul kept a close relationship with this church, but as he left this church, people came in after him who were regarded as the super apostles. And you've got to understand something about these super apostles. They were the rock stars of the first century. People were deeply moved by oratorical skill and swagger and flash, just like they are today. Uh, people were very much into uh, respecting people who were the more attractive sort of celebrities of the day. We know this about Paul. The dude could not preach. We know that. He was not a great preacher. His appearance did not impress anyone. 
He, he was not a particularly good-looking man if church history is to be regarded. But the super apostles had come in after him, attempting to take authority away from Paul and assign it to themselves. And the way they did it was like this. This is the reason why Paul goes down this road. They talked about their experiences of revelations and the appearances of Christ, spiritual experiences of exaltation where they were exalted up to a higher plane and they perceived the spiritual reality of Christ and therefore those spiritual experiences were their righteousness. That's what their credentials were. That's how they impressed people. And so they could tell a good story. They could tell it in a great way. And they boasted it. That is, they regarded these experiences as the authentic stamp of God's approval upon their ministry. And so they boasted. They bragged about. They put before the people constantly, this is what sets us apart. This is what makes us superior to the Apostle Paul in every way. And so what we are stepping into when we step into this particular text is we are beginning to hear from Paul in his response to that. And so he does something that theologians and even he himself has called a fool's speech. Uh, the point where he boasts of his most extreme weakness and his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan. But here, too, we arrive at the climax of his exposure of the religious pride of the superlative apostles. Jonathan Edwards says there's nothing so hard to detect and see in yourself as spiritual pride. And the way you know you have spiritual pride is you don't know how to listen you don't know how to listen. You can't be taught. You can't be uh, instructed. You know everything. And, and, and you've, you've got this wall of pride around you and nothing can penetrate it. And that's exactly what Paul is dealing with here at Corinth. I had a whole lot more to say about spiritual pride from Jonathan Edwards, but I'm going to have mercy on you today because it rips me apart every time I read it because I'm full of it. I'm just so full of it. And through uh, visions and revelations from the Lord, Paul himself had been transported to paradise. That's why he tells this story. And it's a bizarre story, the way he tells it, because he's almost speaking as if it's someone else, not him. He's standing beside himself and saying, there was this man. We come to find out, ultimately, he's speaking of himself, but it's a rhetorical flash. He's using this to make a point regarding his greatest enemies, the super apostles in the church. And so Paul had been transported to paradise where he had heard words that he was not permitted to utter, but God's gift to him of a protracted and debilitating weakness pinned him to earth in humility and dependence on the Lord. Notwithstanding repeated prayer, the weakness was not removed. Paul had to be content with Christ's power to endure the suffering. And the message is clear. Through their visions and revelations, the newcomers are uplifted in religious pride. They were indeed superlative apostles. By the way, 
You don't only get righteousness through legalism, or we, do, we attempt to get works righteousness legalism, but you also get it through experience. There are people who believe their experiences are their righteousness. And if you question them on their experience, you get the wrath. Why? Because that's what they're basing their life on. Experience, spiritual experience. Not something outside of them, not an alien righteousness of Christ that becomes ours through empty-handed faith, but rather a righteousness through experiences. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. Now, Paul begins to uh, talk about, we'll get there in a moment, this unremoved thorn that literally beat him up daily. It buffeted him, and I looked up the Greek word for buffeted, and it means to beat with fists. So whatever this thorn was in Paul's experience, it beat him up daily. He was beaten up by it. And so Paul exercises his ministry in humility and patience, lacking any power of his own, utterly dependent upon the Lord, because God's power is made perfect, not in human strength, but in weakness. Now I can tell you, as a pastor, it's very hard to live that way. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And as a pastor, I know I'm weak, but I value strength because God wired us, men in particular, for strength. And His grace imparts to us real strength. But for me, one of the surprises in Christ is strength in weakness. In a way, I wish it could be formidable and always successful, always smart, always witty, always energetic, always cool, always super positive, powerful pastor. Then people will admire my astonishing wonderfulness, and then I could feel good about myself, and I would love that. And it's the one thing Jesus is always saving me from. How does he save me? He reduces me to weakness and need. And he allows me to see it for myself time after time after time. You'd think I would learn, huh? Then and only then do I humble myself and ask for grace. Then and only then is he exalted as my super savior. I am weak. I can be boring. I get cranky. I fumble my words sometimes in speaking. I get into ruts. Sometimes I forget people's names. I don't have all the answers to every question that comes to me. I could go on and on and on with my remarkable inadequacies. But I have come to believe that the power of Christ resting on a weak man makes more impact for him than my fantasy self batting a thousand ever could. In fact, I have come to like the current arrangement. Yes, I want to be strong in the right ways. No one, so far, has ever accused me of being a wimp. But my own carnal strength needs no longer apply. When the power of Christ rests on me in all my weakness, that is ministry. That is life. It takes a long time to get there. And nobody ever fully gets there. But that is how God uses us. And so, Paul has begun what I've called the fool's speech. He's engaged these super apostles. And he says to us, 
that even his boasting is an unprofitable exercise, something that the boasting of his opponents has forced upon him. Indeed, much that follows appears to mirror, but so as to correct the claims of these super apostles. Thus he will come to visions and revelations from the Lord, specifically a rapture of a man in Christ some 14 years ago in which the man was caught up and brought nothing back that he was free to tell or talk about. Should he choose to boast of that man, it would not be foolish. All that he says is true. But rather, he would boast of his weaknesses, that is, about himself, lest they think more than they should of the man they, whom they have seen and heard. Thus Paul does not deny the substance that he had such experiences. He most certainly did. But he dismissed their significance. Contrary to the intruder's hopes, such phenomena do not authenticate ministry. And so Paul enters in, sort of plays their game with them at a certain level. But it's rather amazing what he does here. He, he steps into their shoes and while they were attempting to undermine his ministry, he begins to talk about this experience he had and how that he had, uh, God had brought him lower in order the, while the revelation had lifted him up, God had brought it lower. One author put it this way, Paul visited he uh, heaven, but when he came back, he was visited by hell. That is Satan himself. And so the occasion of the thorn was in this uh, context of having to defend his ministry against the super apostles. And um, he talks about uh, the thorn in the flesh in the next section. And it's, it's very, uh, um, how would I put it, very difficult to hear how he speaks of this. So Paul brings the fool's speech to a conclusion. By spelling out a specific narrative why he will boast of his weaknesses rather than his experiences. The latter might exalt the apostle himself, but the former serves to exalt Christ. At the same time, it's not hard to see in the opening disclaimer to keep me from being elated a final indirect jab at the superlative but fraudulent disciples. Paul speaks here... Uh, he declares that in a, an abundance of revelations might have over-uplifted Paul in religious pride, as apparently they had exalted his opponents. Against that possibility, God has pinned Paul to the earth with an unidentified scallops. Not like the seafood, but S-K-O-L-O-P-S. That's the word translated thorn, which also can be a spike or a stake or even a fence post. But apparently God pinned Paul down with this stake or thorn. And, and Paul prayed for its removal. Uh, and the Lord effectively replied in the negative, promising him sustaining grace and power. So let's talk a little bit more about the nature of the thorn. It was given to him. That is, it's an aorist tense there. It means in a specific point in time. God is the giver of the thorn through Satan. God uses Satan as a messenger, an angel of darkness, 
to give Paul a thorn in the flesh, to buffet him, to pommel him, to beat him with fists. And it, it is a beating that is continuing. It's in the present tense, so it continually, uh, it, it, it caused, you know, a lot of people thought, well, what is the thorn? And there's always this question about what the thorn is. Is it physical? Is it relational? Is it the Judaizers? Is it somebody in the church? Is it his, was Paul married? Did he have an ex-wife? Had he been divorced? You can read a thousand different things, but it's never told to us what the thorn actually was. But anyway, it could be any of those, all of those or, or none of those. We don't know. But the source is God gave it to him. And let me say something about a messenger of Satan and how Satan works and how God works. It is not unusual for God to use Satan to do things and then completely turn around the outcome. Satan, as Martin Luther said, is God's lackey, God's little messenger boy. And for those of us in Christ, we have no reason to fear the attack of the enemies. Only because our sovereign God will take that attack and in Paul's case, used it for great good. Satan was behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and look how that came out for him. He only fulfilled scripture. And so sometimes I think we are hyper uh, we give him too much credit. While he's much more powerful than we are, much more clever, uh, much more um, seductive, deceptive, etc., he isn't more than God. He is a creature. He's created. Some believe originally was an angel of light, one who brought the worship of the heavenly beings to the Father and decided to ascribe it to himself and was cast out of heaven and ultimately will be cast into the lake of fire. But here, God sends, this is, this will do your theology, uh, uh, make you, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, Re-examine it. God is able to use the buffetings and beatings of Satan upon the Apostle Paul to accomplish the greatest thing in his life, to reduce him to weakness so that God's power may be made perfect in his strength. You see, God's ways are not his ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. You would think that what God would have done would be to strengthen his apostle by building him up and causing him to experience good health and giving him every opportunity, and yet at every step this man is dogged by the enemy of our souls, and yet God uses the mechanization of Satan to accomplish his purposes. What is the ultimate evil of the universe? Crucifying the Lord of glory. And how did God use that? To completely destroy and render powerless over those who believe Satan himself. And though this world, is, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the worker of wickedness in this age. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus have been delivered from his realm of control. We're still subject to his realm of action and deception, but we are delivered from his control. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Believe that. We need to believe that. 
And so, as a result of that, the devil was used here, and the purpose of the thorn was to bring Paul back to the earth. He, had been, he could have been spiritually proud by what he had experienced, but now he is crucified, as it were. His existence becomes cruciform. It was painful. It was humiliating. It was shameful. It was something that God caused suffering, and the way Paul responded to it was exactly the same way Jesus responded in Gethsemane to the cup, the cup of God's wrath that he must drink. And Jesus, as we know, went into the garden and went deeper into the garden of Gethsemane and prayed, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, what I will, your will be done. And you know, Paul does the same thing. He prays three times. Three times he prays for the Lord to take the thorn away. And the Lord says, no, removal is not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to remove the thorn away from you, but rather I'm going to give you something better. My grace is more than enough for you. My grace is more than enough for you. And so Paul experiences, he has that cross-shaped life. Some theologians call it a cruciform existence, life shaped by the cross. Martin Luther distinguished between what he called a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And what Luther meant by a theology of glory is we, by our own goodness, work our way up to God and God rewards our successes and he constantly... Um, uh, uh, works with us on the basis of how well we do and if we're successful we get blessed but Luther comes along and says no that's the way of the world here's the way of God it's a theology of the cross God breaks us God deflates us God brings us down in order that in our weakness we will seek him for our strength what comes natural being strong in myself. Now, I, I grew up that way. That was reinforced in me all of my life. I was told from the day I ever remer remember hearing anyone say anything to me, my father said, you can do anything you want to if you just put your mind to it. Now, I don't know if any of you were reared that way, but I was. You know what? I believed it. <laughs> and it's taken God 60 years to beat that out of me. And he has beat that out of me. I think God gives every Christian some kind of thorn in the flesh. I do. I really believe he does. Something that if you had it in your power, you would get rid of it today. You want that out of your life. It is sapping you. It is beating you. It is wearing you out. It is breaking you. And you wish it wasn't there. And you've asked God to take it away a hundred times. And he hasn't done, uh, done that for you yet. And the answer may be he has something better for you. Weakness. Weakness is better for you than strength in the realm of the Spirit. In the realm of the Spirit. Um, suffering is often related here. Uh, and so Paul prayed three times. And he heard and he continues to hear over and over again that weakness is vulnerability. Ability, powerlessness, inability, or self-sufficiency. 
destroy him. Now he can reach out outside of himself and receive a power that will deliver him. And so Paul, in response to all of this, says something very, there's something very amazing here. In the words that evoke the memory of Good Friday and Easter, Paul observes that Christ, who was crucified in weakness, lives by the power of God, and that believers by God's power live with Christ. Christ's death and life are reproduced in the lives of God's people. God's power through Christ's weakness in death by crucifixion issues in the crucifixion of Paul's inflated pride. By means of a thorn or a stake or a spike, God's power which caused Christ to be alive in the resurrection and believers with him issues in the power of Christ experienced in patience, endurance, meekness, and the gentleness of Christ. Thus the Lord's reply to Paul for the removal of the thorn is given in the terms of the very gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ that the apostle proclaimed. We are always bearing about in our bodies, Paul says, the death of Jesus. We are always, as Luther used to so frequently say it, God kills us to make us alive. He kills us. He brings us down to resurrect us up. And in weakness, you experience the power of the resurrection. But let me say one thing uh, else about the power of Christ and how Paul describes it here. It's interesting. He talks about the power of Christ dwelling over. He's actually using tabernacle imagery in which the Shekinah glory of God fills the tabernacle and the tabernacle, though on the outside is very common and coarse, on the inside was dwelling the Shekinah glory, the very presence of the living God. And so what Paul says he has learned is that in his weakness the power of Christ rests over him as the Shekinah glory of God rested over the Ark of the Covenant and the altar in the uh, tabernacle. He says God's, God's presence, God's power camps over me. And so the person who is truly spiritually strong may seem to be the person who is an otherwise weak. Paul mentioned today in his class on the Gospel of John, the woman at the well who became such an effective evangelist for Jesus. She'd been married five times. She had not, was presently living with a man who wasn't her husband, and Christ gave her the living water to drink, and she goes into town and tells everyone, and she's an effective evangelist. Don't let your weaknesses, your brokenness, your vulnerability, your shame limit you and your availability to be used by God. What gave Paul credentials was not his brilliance, he was brilliant, not his education, he was educated, not his uh, dogged personality, his never-let-go stick-to-itiveness that he possessed, his determination. What made Paul great was weakness. Weakness. And I know you all are, because I know I am. And I know 
that as we discover our weakness more and more, let me put it to you this way. Sometimes in a situation, I am placed in a position where a person has either heard some devastating news or I have to tell them devastating news or I have to try to comfort people in all kinds of situations. And I want to tell you, I've been doing this for 45 years. What you see me doing now, I've been doing for 45 years. And there are days when I don't have a word to say. I can't think of a thing to say to comfort you. And you know what I do? I go to the Lord and say, I got nothing. I am weak. I am vulnerable. I just don't have it. Unless you fill me, unless you give me grace in this moment, I'm, it, I'm done. Nothing will happen. And I have in 45 years of ministry, never seen him let me down one time, ever. His grace is sufficient, more than enough. And I know some of you have weaknesses that if you could get rid of today, you would be delighted. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, they're higher than the heavens. They're transcendent. They're filled with wisdom. But that is the wisdom of the cross. That is the theology of the cross. Theologica crucis, Martin Luther called it. Power through weakness. That's why the church doesn't necessarily, doesn't ever need any particular famous person to be converted. We're glad when any are. And we hope that many more will come to Christ. But celebrity is not what saves people. Christ is the one who saves. So in your weakness, claim the promise that God's strength will be made perfect. So much more here, but I think that's enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text. There's so much more here. But we thank you for speaking to us today. I thank you for speaking to me. I thank you for making it clear to me over and over again that my powerless, powerlessness and vulnerability, whether bodily or relationally or financially or structurally, that the grace of Christ is shown and the power of Christ rests over those of us who own our weakness and look to grace to be sufficient in us. Lord, let us learn to boast in our weaknesses because the uh, Christ power rests upon us. We thank you that you pitch your tent with your saints in their weaknesses. Father, we thank you for this text. Again, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who experience strength and weakness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.